Last night we spoke a little bit about the meaning of the word Dhamma, which means the law, or the truth, or reality, or natural law. And the fact that phenomena is unfolding according to law, it's not haphazard, it's not accidental. There is a lawfulness to what arises. And the implication of this is that there is an actual path to follow which deconditions the mind from the tendencies of greed and of hatred and of ignorance. Because these factors are caused or conditioned. When we understand the Dhamma, or we understand the law, we see what conditions these forces and what deconditions them. So there is an actual path to follow. And the power of the Buddha's teaching, the power of his enlightenment, was the wonderful clarity with which he saw and expressed this path to deconditioning the mind from these unwholesome qualities. It's a path that is extremely systematic and it's progressive. That is, one step leads to the next step, leads to the next step, and in this way our minds actually can become purified. We can reach to the goal of freedom of mind. People may come to a retreat with an idea that spiritual practice somehow is separated from the rest of their lives. It's a different kind of experience, a different kind of situation. But this is a very inaccurate perception of what the spiritual path is about. In the first discourse that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, <clears throat> it has a very wonderful title. It's called The Setting of the Wheel of the Dhamma in Motion. With that first discourse, he set the wheel of the law turning. He talked about this path to freedom in the mind in a way that touches on all the different aspects of our lives. It's not just coming to a retreat center and sitting in a certain posture or doing some strange walking exercise. The path of purifying the mind touches every aspect of what we do. So in this first discourse, he called this path, this path of practice, path of purification, the Noble Eightfold Path. Because it has eight parts, all interrelated, <coughs> and parts that cannot be <coughs> separated. <coughs> if we really want to accomplish our goal, we can say, well, I'll do five of the eight and skip the other three, because they're all integrated. They're part of a whole. And they're divided into three main sections, three areas of training. And it is a training. We are training ourselves. We train ourselves in morality. 
That's the first group. We train ourselves in concentration, or what is called samadhi, and we train ourselves in wisdom. This is the progression of the path. Sila, or morality, samadhi, or concentration, panya, or wisdom. What are the components, what are the aspects of sila? Sila or morality is the absolute bedrock and foundation of our practice. It's often, it's been interesting to me to see how the Dharma has come to the West and what interests people. And mostly I think we jump in from the other end. It's like we're, all, we're mostly interested in kind of insight into the working of the mind and interesting kinds of experiences. And very often we have to backtrack and realize that we can't do that. We can't really accomplish that in a significant way unless we really look at our lives in terms of what morality means. It's not the, moral, the morality of self-righteousness. For one thing, it means right speech. It's one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path. We have to pay attention to our speech. This is a, a huge part of our lives. We talk a lot. We talk, except in this kind of situation, we talk a good part of every day. This is a very powerful energy. We don't very often reflect on how we're using this. We just kind of speak out of habit, out of conditioning. So the Buddha talked, he singled out speech as being a very important part of our lives to examine. What is right speech? How can we train ourselves in this? In one aspect, <clears throat> it means a commitment to being honest, to being truthful. And it seems so obvious that if we want to come to really a deep understanding of the truth, of what is true in ourselves, that we have to be fostering that with our commitment to truth and speech. So in an obvious way, it means not lying. In one discourse the Buddha gave to his young son, who had become a novice in the order of monks, the Buddha was admonishing his son, whose name was Rahula, and he said, not for any reason, either for your own sake or for the sake of anybody else should you say that which is not true. That's a very powerful statement. It's very direct, it's very straight. There's so much value placed on the truth. It doesn't mean that we go, and, that we go running around telling everybody what we think of them. And that is not what that means, because speaking the truth also has to do with suitability of time and suitability of circumstance. Is it the right time? Is it the right place? 
But it is a commitment to not say that which is not true. Think of how simple our lives would become if we could do that in a very profound way. We complicate our lives unnecessarily. Often we shade the truth to bolster some kind of self-image, some sense of who we are. We exaggerate, or we color it a little bit, or we, we tell an untruth because we think we're protecting somebody. And it's all a weakening of the mind. And it's so insidious. It's just so much a habit. One time I went in for an interview with Upandita. It was the first time he was teaching in this country. This was in 1984, and he's a very demanding teacher, and very, he's like a person a Zen master. He was sitting there kind of stern, and I was terrified <laughs> every interview. And he would be asking all kinds of questions, some of them trick questions, you know, just to see if you were really being honest. And I was reported something, and I had this idea that one particular experience was a good kind of experience to be having. And I had been having it a few days previously, and I thought, yeah, this is really good practice. And so I went in, and I just reported as, as if it was still happening. And it was all on kind of this half-conscious, like I sort of knew what I was doing, but really kind of just an old habit. He knew immediately. <laughs> You know, and they kind of called me out on it. And I saw how easy it is for the mind just to slip away from being totally straight, totally honest, totally open. It's a very powerful training. And it's something that we have to bring a lot of mindfulness to because our habits are so strong. This is part of our practice. It's as important a part of our practice as sitting here, sitting, sitting, doing the meditation. It's also considering, before we speak, whether what we're going to say is useful. Even if we're not lying or saying something which is untrue, much of what we say is totally useless. It's babble. Can we pay enough attention so that before it comes out, we're aware in the mind, is this helpful? Is this of any use at all? And if it's not, simply to let it go. It's amazing the effect on the mind when we are able to take some care with our speech and let a lot of the unnecessary speech go, our mind becomes a lot more peaceful, a lot more quiet. To pay attention in that way, it has a very, a very great effect on our own minds and on our relationships with other people. Not speaking just uselessly, not using a lot of harsh language or angry language. In this teaching of right speech, the Buddha emphasized that the goal should be harmony rather than disunity. Now, our speech is very powerful. How much conflict in the world, in interpersonal relationships, comes about 
because we're not paying careful attention. You know, the energy of speech, it's like, it can be, it can be quite violent. That's to be restrained, to be let go of. This is a training, the same way we train in the mindfulness or concentration. This is the first aspect of morality, working with the energy of speech. The second step is called right action. (coughs) Right action means not killing. Just imagine the world if everybody followed this one precept. There's one precept not to kill. Mostly, I think, we don't go around doing a lot of killing. Probably not killing other people at all, and probably not even killing animals very much. But what about the little things? I think we're, uh, <laughs> you know the right word exactly. Uh, size for morphic. <laughs> it's like somehow we value beings of a certain size, and if they don't measure up to our concept of how big a being should be, we think that somehow their life is not worth as much. This is a very distorted view. Can we take care of how we, how we relate even to very small insects you know, and bugs and things that we normally think of as being unpleasant? Can we explore every alternative to killing? To really be committed to trying to have a reverence towards life. Again, it changes our attitude, it changes the quality of our mind, it changes the quality of our own life when we have this basic relationship. Sometimes there are problems. This is, this is like a koan, this is a very difficult aspect of the Eightfold Path as we apply it as householders. You know, what do we do when carpenter ants are eating our house? There are problems, there are real situations where we're forced to choose. The suggestion is that we be as conscious and as compassionate as possible. That we really seek out all the alternatives to killing. Sometimes it it cannot be helped. But that we look at it, we don't just do it automatically. Now in this culture, the advertisements, the Roach Hotel, <laughs> I mean, the euphemisms that we use, you know, to, to cover over what we're actually doing. Not killing, not stealing, it's the second part of right action. Again, in an obvious way, it means not taking that which isn't offered. In a more subtle way, it means paying attention to our use of common resources. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that our planet is in a very fragile situation, basically because of greed. 
you know, and when we use a lot more than we need, it's a kind of stealing. And so consciousness in this area not only awakens our own mind and spirit, but it has this very beneficial effect on all other beings on the planet. It's part of the path. We can't separate that part of our lives. It's not killing, it's not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct. In the context of a retreat, that's very simple. It means observing celibacy. What does it mean in our lives, outside? Sexual desire is a strong force. That's a very strong energy in most people's lives. How is it being used? You know, if we're using it, if we're gratifying that desire in ways that involve deception, or dishonesty, or harm, or cruelty, or suffering, to ourselves, to other people, there's something fundamentally not harmonious about that. When people commit adultery, not a wholesome act. Because for one's own gratification, it's causing harm to somebody else. We have to look very carefully and very straightforwardly at that. Especially in our Western society, because we don't really have a strong sense of traditional values in this area. It's quite experimental and open, and in many ways that's wonderful. But there's also a tremendous responsibility we have to take to really look at our actions in that regard. The consequences for ourselves and for other people are very significant. Our actions do not occur in a vacuum. But every action we do brings result. It affects other people, it rebounds to ourselves. This is part of the spiritual path. We can't be busy purifying our minds on one hand, and on the other hand, be doing actions that are motivated by unwholesome forces. This foundation of morality is essential. This is right speech, right action. The third part of moral training is right livelihood. And basically it means not being involved in livelihood that involves pain and suffering for others, or for oneself, whether it involves deception or dishonesty. You know, hunting, fishing, dealing in harmful drugs, weapons, very obvious things. There's an attitude, though, implied in this aspect of right livelihood, and it has to do with an attitude of service. If we're doing some job, can we imbue that with the sense of we're doing it in order to serve other people? It can be anything. It can be checking out groceries at a supermarket, or working in an office, or teaching in a school, whatever. Can we bring that attitude of service? There's a wonderful story of 
Kalu Rinpoche, who's very old and wonderful Tibetan meditation master. He was visiting the Boston uh, Aquarium, and he was walking through the aquarium, and at each tank, he would tap on the glass and get the little fish's attention, big fishes. And when he got their attention, he would chant Om Mani Padme Hum, which is a Tibetan blessing. Imagine going through life with that attitude, that every being you meet, you're blessing. It's a wonderful, a wonderful way to live. We spend a lot of our lives doing our work. Doing, that's a big chunk of time. That is not separate from our spiritual undertaking. It's part of it. And we have to learn and practice how to bring it all together. So refraining from occupations which are harmful, and also imbuing what we do with a sense of real compassion, with a sense of care for the people we're relating to. It's not so hard to do, it's hard to remember to do. And so we just have to keep reminding ourselves. The power of morality, and the Buddha emphasized it over and over again, lies in its ability to take care of ourselves and to take care of others. When we train ourselves in this way, how do we take care of ourselves? We take care of ourselves because we're not doing those actions which create unwholesome karma, unwholesome results in the future which come back to us as suffering. And we take care of ourselves because there is freedom from remorse in the mind. When we do unskillful things, then there's, there's that feeling of remorse. When we're grounded in a basic morality, the mind is free of that. There's a kind of joy, there's a kind of happiness. You know, as people meditate more in intensive practice situations, the mind becomes so sensitive to what we have done in our lives. The unwholesome things bring a sense of sadness, and the wholesome things bring about a sense of real happiness, a very deep happiness, reflecting on the purity of one's actions. Now, we've all done in, in our long wandering through samsara, we've all done everything. And so it's not a question of dwelling on the unwholesome things we may have done. From the time that we are committed to following the basic precepts, they're not so difficult. <coughs> From the time of our commitment, just to taking the five precepts, from that time, we establish a sense of confidence, a sense of strength, a sense of non-remorse in the mind. So we take care of ourselves through morality. We also take care of others. 
the basic principle of moral behavior is non-harming. That we are committed to not harm other beings, not to harm ourselves. With that commitment, we are giving every being we meet a gift. We're giving them the gift of trust. We're giving them the gift of fearlessness. Because we are saying with our actions, there is nothing in me that you have to fear. That is a fantastic gift to give to people. The gift of fearlessness. And now we do with the way we live our lives. With this foundation of morality, of non-remorse in the mind, of joy in the mind, it makes possible the next step in the training, which is the development of the group of factors called samadhi, or concentration. And really, that's what we are cultivating in a very intensive way on the retreat. The first aspect of this group is right effort. Understanding right effort is the key to the whole practice. Effort is the source, it's the root of all attainment. Without proper effort, nothing happens. We just go along in our old habituated ways. Effort is this energy. It's arousing an energy to pay attention. Right effort is the quality of mind which does not accept laziness or lethargy. Laziness or lethargy comes, right effort is there and says, sorry, I'm going to pay attention. I'm not going to give in to you. And as we know, this laziness or lethargy of mind is quite strong. It's very tempting. We're seduced by it over and over again. And so we cultivate this factor of right effort to stand up to that. Say, no, there's a commitment to wakefulness. There's a commitment to paying attention. That's what I'm interested in doing. You can feel the strength that comes from that. There are different kinds of effort that we need to make in our practice. And there's a quality of, in Pali the word is, is virya. And it means heroic effort or courageous effort. Because it takes that kind of determination, that kind of resolve to overcome long established patterns in the mind. You see, after just one or two days of practice, how difficult the task is. The mind stays on the breath two times, three times, ten times. That's a good sitting, ten times. Very difficult. And so we have to really arouse that determination, I'm going to keep bringing it back. The first effort that's needed is called launching effort. 
It's the effort to launch our practice. And what that means is <coughs> that we make the effort to bring the mind back to the primary object over and over again. It's countless times we come back, we come back, we come back. After some time of this, the mindfulness begins to get a little stronger. And our mind begins to stay a little more, a little more deeply on the rising, falling, or the in and out, or the walking. As our meditation deepens, what happens is that certain obstacles arise. And it's interesting that the obstacles arise because of the deepening of practice. So it's not a problem, but rather it's something on the path which we have to learn about. For example, we make this launching effort just to, to bring the mind to the primary object. We get a little settled in that, and then we start to experience different kinds of pain and tension and itching and restlessness in the body. When we're not paying attention, it's fine. We have no problems. You go to the movies, you can sit for hours without moving. You know, we sit here, as the attention starts going inward, we begin to feel all these kinds of discomfort. Another kind of effort is needed when these obstacles or distractions or hindrances arise. And they arise, as I say, as a result of deepening practice. So it's not something that shouldn't be happening, but rather something that we have to learn how to deal with skillfully. We need what's called overcoming effort, or liberating effort. We need the effort that can overcome the difficulties. We're feeling pain, or unpleasantness, or restlessness, or discomfort. There has to be that sense of patience, sense of perseverance, I'm going to be with this, I'm going to open to it, I'm going to stay with it. The arousing of that kind of energy. It's essential. Otherwise what happens is we start walking along this path to free the mind and we come along to certain obstacles and if we don't have this kind of effort, we fall back. We're not willing to go through it. one place we were teaching, they had a sign on the wall, the only way out is through. And it's perfect for practice. The only way out is through. We have to go through all of these things that come up. So we arouse the second kind of effort, overcome the difficulties, really be persevering in your practice. Don't retreat from them. When we arouse that kind of effort and actually overcome the difficulty, what happens is this tremendously wonderful feeling of accomplishment. There's a great feeling of happiness, of confidence, of fearlessness, because we face something, we stayed with it, and we've actually overcome it. We've gone through it. And we can do that with the different feelings of pain, with the different kinds of hindrances, with sleepiness, with laziness in the mind. And so there's a great sense of joy and confidence that comes in our practice. 
the mindfulness starts to come easier, more effortlessly. And we start noting in a very, a very easy way. At that time, a third kind of effort is needed. And that's the effort which prevents us from going on cruise control. Which happens in the practice. We, we overcome the difficulties and everything starts to smooth out and it's going well. <coughs> Mindfulness is there and the mind's fairly concentrated and we're cruising along. But that's not enough. We haven't yet reached the goal. We haven't, we haven't really come to the culmination of our practice. It takes very delicate, it's a very delicate balance, but it takes making continual effort in the proper way so that we continue to go deeper, that we don't just stagnate or cruise along. This is very crucial, particularly for old yogis you know, who have a lot of practice and who may have reached that place of cruising. Right effort needs to be balanced. It's a very crucial and delicate factor. If we don't make enough effort, nothing happens. We don't go through any of the progress along the path. If we make too much effort, we can also get out of balance. What causes us to make too much effort? Competitive sitting. Common disease in the West. We may have very strong expectations and desire for good sittings or good results. Or this sitting I'm going to get enlightened and all kinds of expectations and comparing with other people. If we have these over-expectations in our practice, so then we make all this effort, but it's out of balance. We're overshooting the mark and we get restless and agitated, we lose our concentration, we lose our mindfulness, we then get discouraged, and people sometimes give up the practice. Because it's not living up to some expectation that they've had of themselves, a lot of self-judgment. It's very important to keep the proper balance of right effort. And an image that I like a lot to describe it is the effort that we need, you know, if we're climbing a mountain. There's an inspiration. We may have a view of the peak that really inspires us. I'm going to get to the top. That's great. And it really kind of, we gather all of our effort, even though it's very strenuous to do it. But as we're walking, we have to do it just step by step by step by step and really be grounded in each moment. Because if you start running up the mountain full of this over-expectation, very quickly we get tired. And then we give up. So the effort has to be sustained, it has to be steady, it has to be even. And in that way we accomplish what we set out to do. There's a phrase by the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa. He said, hasten slowly. 
And I like it because it combines just the right. It's really fullness and fullness of effort and patience. Hasten slowly. This right effort, which is the root, the foundation of our practice, is the effort to be mindful, which is the next step on the path. Mindfulness means the observing power of the mind. It means noticing what is happening. And not noticing in a superficial way, not having the mind glance over objects, but actually a strong and steady focus, a direct connection with what's going on. The example used to describe this quality of mind is like the difference between having a cork which bobs along on the surface of water and a stone which drops to the bottom. Mindfulness is like the stone. It sinks into the object. And so when we're watching the rising falling or the walking, or the in and out, it's not sufficient to sort of be with it. That doesn't do it, because that's not really mindfulness. Mindfulness or observing power is like that stone in the water where it goes right into what we're observing. At first, we get the general impression of it. When we're watching the rising and falling, at first there might be an impression you know, of the form of the abdomen you know, as it arises, as it rises and as it falls. As we look more deeply and more carefully, we begin to see the details, not just the surface impression, what are the details of that experience. And there are many details in one rising movement. It's not just one thing, it's many, many different things. <coughs> Mindfulness is that power of mind which looks that carefully. And not just once, not just twice, repeatedly through the day. In the beginning, it takes a lot of effort. It does. It's a, it's a task. The beauty of the practice and the beauty of our minds is that as these factors get stronger, they start to work by themselves. There comes a time in practice when mindfulness becomes effortless, where that is the natural state rather than the state we have to struggle for. But in order to develop it to that extent, we need to develop a certain momentum. A momentum of noticing. A momentum of noting. There's something which I call NPMs, which is notings per minute. And mostly when we start, our NPMs are quite low. Maybe we're going at 10 NPMs. <laughs> See if you can get up to 50 NPMs or 60 NPMs. So just moment after moment, second after second. Noting, 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 noting. Softly, gently, delicately, but consistently, without break. When we practice in that way, 
And there will be breaks. It's not to say there, there definitely will be breaks, but then we start again. We do it again. We keep making that effort. The momentum builds up. The mindfulness as a quality in our mind becomes very strong. It starts working, working by itself. Just as right effort is the root of all attainment, of all realization, because without the effort, nothing happens, mindfulness, or this observing power, is the central core, the central aspect of the purifying process. And so it's an exceedingly important quality. How does it purify the mind? In every moment of noting, in every moment of being mindful, the mind is free of grasping, it's free of greed, it's free of hatred, it's free of delusion. When we, even if we're noting anger, or if we're noting hatred, in the moment of noting it, we are not identified with it. And so in that moment, there's purity. We do it moment after moment, and the mind is purified of these very deeply rooted tendencies. From sitting to sitting, or walking to walking, it may feel like not much is happening. But actually something exceedingly significant is happening. It's sort of like the fruit ripening on a tree. From day to day you don't see it, but you leave it on the tree and by the end of the summer something has happened. It's the same way in our practice. Each of these moments that we pay attention, the mind is actually getting purified of these defiling forces. So right mindfulness is right effort, right mindfulness. The third aspect in this group is right concentration. Concentration means steadiness of mind, one-pointedness of mind. It's the power. Concentration is the power to do anything. You know, when, when we're involved in any activity, anything, whether it's, it's you know, sports, or art, or business. If our mind is scattered, we don't accomplish anything. The ability to focus on what's happening is a very great source of strength and power for us. We can develop that kind of concentration in our practice so that we can examine the nature of the mind and body in a very deep way. It's like focusing the mind into a laser beam. It's amazing that we just live on the very surface of our consciousness because we have not developed this tool of concentration. And yet it's potential within all of us. It's, it's a potential in the mind. It's something we can do. And you will see even in a short retreat, even in 10 days time, if the effort is continuous, the concentration can develop 
very, very strongly. These three factors of effort, mindfulness, and concentration, when they work together, when the three of them are together, it's called the group of samadhi, or the group of concentration, because it has the power to keep the hindrances at bay. When effort, mindfulness, and concentration are there, the strong hindrances of mind cannot come in. And the image which is used, which is very nice, (coughs) if you have a thread of something, a single thread is easily broken. If you take a few threads and intertwine them, then that becomes very strong, very difficult to break. In just the same way, any one of these three singly can be easily broken. When the three are intertwined together, the mind becomes very, very steady, very strong, very healthy. Healthy because the hindrances are not coming. They're not, they're not coming to weaken the mind. The last two aspects of this Eightfold Path are the wisdom group and it's right aim and right understanding. Right aim is that ability of the mind to aim properly towards the object, to connect with the object so that it's not, so that it's not scattered, it's not forgetful. We begin to know what's happening. Right understanding Right understanding has two components. The first one is the understanding of the law of karma. Basic law in the Buddhist teachings, which I've alluded to before, it means that our actions have results. That if we do certain things, it brings about a certain effect. When we act based on greed, on hatred, on delusion, we are sowing the seeds of suffering. When we act based on generosity, on love, on wisdom, we are sowing the seeds of our own happiness. The Buddha called understanding the law of karma the light of the world because it illuminates, it's the law of how things are unfolding. It's not accidental, it's not haphazard. We are the creators of our own destinies by the the kinds of actions we perform. And so we have to, we have to take responsibility for that. And it really creates a tremendous sense of inspiration that we can create the unfolding of our lives. The other part of right understanding has to do with meditative understanding. 
meditative insight. And Sharon is going to speak much more about this in a later talk. The basic characteristics of our experience of seeing the impermanence of phenomena, the momentariness of phenomena, that there is nothing solid, that it's all arising and passing away every moment. We have the ability to see this when that samadhi group is strong, when the effort, mindfulness and concentration is strong, we pay attention, we see every single moment arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. Everything, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, sounds, sights, it's all in this process of change. And we see the basic insecurity of that situation, <coughs> the unsatisfactoriness of it, in the sense that there's nothing there which can give us a lasting happiness, precisely because it's all changing. So when we see it, we stop trying to hold on so much. We're not so grasping, we're not so clinging. And we see the essential selflessness of this whole process. And this is really the jewel of the Buddhist teaching. Coming to the understanding that in this process of mind and body, there is no I, no self behind it to whom it's happening. It's not that thoughts belong to anybody or sensations belong to anybody. It's simply a process of mental, physical elements unfolding. This is a radical shift of understanding from our usual way of viewing ourselves. This concept of I, this concept of self, of me, is so strong, so deeply rooted. And so in our practice, we're beginning to open up to a totally different way of understanding. This is the path, this is the path of practice which the Buddha expressed with such great clarity. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, how we're living in the world, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, the development of those tools of mind to enable us to see clearly right aim and right understanding, the culmination. In every moment of practice, every moment of awareness, this whole Eightfold Path is present. And so we are actually walking, we're developing this path of purification. <coughs> Try to be very steady, very persevering, very continuous with it, because that will build the power of the practice and you will experience then the results. Sit for a few minutes. <coughs> <coughs> 